Okay, the passage today is Matthew 27, verses 27 through 44. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They, there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. All right, thank you. Good morning. Everybody all right? Okay, so, uh, yeah, come out on Tuesday. Uh, We're going to talk about... Genesis. Um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm not a scientist um, at all, um, but um, I am, am absolutely a fan of biblical scholarship. And so I'm basically going to be going through my journey um, of moving from sort of one position to another and the things that I've learned along the way, and then we're going to open up the book of Genesis, and we're going to read it maybe with fresh eyes, and we're going to see some things that I think are incredibly helpful. So um, for those of you who struggle with this topic a lot, you should come. Um, I'm going to offer you something new, Uh, maybe. Um, And so, uh, yeah, so this is our passage today. Um, This is sermon number 100 in the book of Matthew, and uh, we are are two more and we're done. Unless I decide to go three, and then we'll do three. Um, But here's what we're going to do. If you weren't here for the um, congregational meeting, um, I sort of explained we're going to we're going to finish up this book in in uh, in by the end of uh, this month, by the end of July, I believe. No, end uh, end of August, Um, September. We're going to be doing some. Um, some theology. I'm going to be talking about Trinitarian theology. I'm going to talk about the Bible. What is it? How did it come to be? Is it trustworthy? This kind of stuff. I've got a weird thing going on. Check. Okay. Um, and, then, uh, and then we're going to jump into the book of Acts. And we're going to go pretty far in the book of Acts. I'm thinking about stopping when we get to Corinth, where Paul writes the letter to the Romans. And then jump over and follow that letter as Phoebe takes it over there. 
and gathers the 150, maybe 100 Christians in Rome together and preaches the book of Romans to them. So, um, and then we're going to do that book, but we're going to do it backwards. Um, that'll make sense when I'm done. Um, and then we're going to maybe jump back to Acts and finish that. So that's our next, like, 12 years. <laughs> And then I'm going on sabbatical when I'm 80. So, okay. Um, okay, so, yeah, let's pray and let's jump into this. Here's what we're doing um, today. Um, this is second service. I got all the time I want. Um, and so, um, I said last week, Jesus is not really the central figure of chapter 27 of Matthew's crucifixion sort of description. Um, everyone moving around Jesus is the central figure. Everyone around Jesus... Uh, is, is unique and playing a part and doing something that is meant to call the listener back to the original um, sort of teachings of Jesus um, as a way of embodying the things he's been saying. I'm going to talk more about that today. So we're going to look at a few more characters today. We're going to look at the soldiers that, that beat Jesus up, that roughed him up. We're going to talk about the, um, the, uh, this man, Simon of Cyrene. Uh, we actually know more about him from the text than, than you might imagine. Um, and we have, uh, we're going to talk about um, this mixture that Jesus, the people that brought Jesus this mixture to drink, we know a little bit about that from ancient texts. Um, and then we're going to talk about um, sort of the embodiment of the message of Christ here. So let's, uh, it's, it's going to be, there's a lot going on. So let's pray and let's ask for wisdom and understanding and let's jump into this. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for gathering them, gathering them all here. Um, this is my family. Um, you are our Father. We, we live and work for your glory. We ask that you would guide us to the, into the people that you want us to become. Um, I pray that every one of us would be able to play our part and that we would see each other as equals. That um, we would be one people, all at the same level, all with the same honor, all the same equality before you, our King. Um, and I pray that this morning as we open up this ancient text and we read it, may we comprehend the thoughts of Pastor Matthew as he writes to his church, um, and may we be that church that he's speaking to, and may we connect with these letters in the same way that they did. And whatever it was that caused them to absolutely overturn their world, may that fall upon us as well, and may we follow you in this way. Thank you. In your name. Amen. So we're going to start here in verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head and they put a staff in his right hand. And then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. And they spit on him and they took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again. Um, So these were... Roman soldiers, their job, their entire life centered on learning to kill people, um, learning how to inflict pain upon people. They were raised from very, very young to use their bodies to inflict damage and suffering on other human beings. They were very good at it. Um, And they never missed an opportunity to use their skills, okay? Um, However, I want to talk a little bit about... Uh, um, the mindset of the Roman soldiers. They are a product of their upbringing, yes. Uh, On top of that, they didn't know who Jesus was. This was, as far as they are concerned, another 
failed Jewish Messiah. There had been 10, 15 of them in the last few years. Um, and they all died. They were all killed by some of these guys. And they're upset that they even have to live in the city of Jerusalem. Their sort of, um, their, their fortress has been built connected to the temple, built onto the temple. And they're in the praetorium here. Um, and they, they've got Jesus in their presence. And Jesus to them represents everything wrong with the situation in which they are living. These men are not from here. There are no Romans that live in Jerusalem. It is an entirely Jewish settlement. Very few Gentiles live there. Um, These Romans definitely did not live there. They were from somewhere else. They had families. They had wives and children, households that they were running, and they wanted to be home. Yet these Jewish people kept rising up and causing riots, um, revolutions. They they, They want their Roman oppressors off their backs. They don't want to pay the taxes. They feel completely oppressed, which they were. Um, And they want to overthrow Herod and they want to rule themselves in their land as God had always promised. Right now they feel like they're in exile, even though they're in their own land. They're somehow still in exile. Everything had not come back the way it was supposed to be yet. And so the Romans to the Jews represent evil. They're the bad guys. But to the Romans, the Jews are the bad guys. The Romans have, they have a king. They're in the Roman Empire. They have a king, an elected official, whom they serve, whom they are loyal to. They pay taxes. Um, they were raised. They benefit greatly from the empire. And these um, ethnic minorities, there's, there's a huge sort of racial tinge to this whole thing. They look at these Jews as troublemakers, as everything that is wrong with their empire And they really want, we know from their writings, they really, really, really wanted to wipe out the Jews and just kill them all and get them them out of Rome. Eventually, they would actually do that. They would try to exterminate the Jews. But in this moment, Jesus is standing there in their midst. He represents all of their bitterness. Um, They have to live here. They have to constantly put down rebellions. And they're over it. And they're angry. And Jesus represents all of their bitterness and their racial bitterness, all of their anger towards these people whom they have nothing in common with, who are a different color, speak different languages, have different customs and culture. And they have a king. And they look at Jesus and they're like, oh, you want to be a king? You want to be, dress him up as a king. And they strip him naked and they put a crown of thorns on his head, put a staff in his hand, they bow down. Oh, great king, look at you, you're a king now. And they take the staff and they just start beating him over the head with it. And they rough him up and Jesus receives all of it. In this moment, Jesus is receiving their bitterness, their racism, their hatred. The full weight of it all falls upon Jesus and he stands there and receives it. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't cower. He receives it, all of it. He's, it's almost like he's pulling it out of them. Get it all out. Let it go. Put it on me. Let me be what you hate in them. Put it on me. Um, and what's fascinating is at the end of this whole thing, in verse 54, you see something we didn't read yet this morning. It says, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake... Uh, And all that had happened, 
They were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So some of these same guys would eventually, by the end of the night, actually proclaim that this guy's different. He's not like the other ones. Something's different about this person. He somehow has a presence and a power that is being unleashed that we don't understand. And they, it's almost like they felt like they were taking part in something they ought not to, to have taken part in, that this ought not to have happened. And this is probably the first time they've ever felt like this. Um, so this is happening. Jesus is pulling out of them everything, all their hatred, their bitterness, the racial divide, all of it, on himself. And he's receiving it. And then we go a little farther and it says what they did next. It says, they led him away to crucify him. And as they were going, going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. So Jesus is being led down a street called the Via Dolorosa. We're pretty sure that we know the path. Um, and it, it ends by going out. Uh, it originally, it probably went out different gates and it goes out now. Um, but as it heads out the gates... Um, there would have been a crowd there. There would have been sort of four guards around Jesus, one of them probably holding the sign as his king of the Jews, and they think it's hilarious because these are all Jewish people around them. Here's your king. We beat him up. We roughed him up. Um, and he's wearing the crown of thorns, and he's beaten. They ripped his beard out, and he's, he's just he's, he's really disfigured and messed up. He's been scourged, um, and so his back flesh is all, it's disgusting. And he's carrying this cross, the, the cross beam to this thing. He has to carry it out and up another hill, hillside um, where he's going to be nailed to it and hung um, in traditional Roman execution style. Um, and as he's heading out, Mark tells us some, some facts about it. Mark tells us that, uh, about, the, about the approximate hours. As, um, he endured the torment of crucifixion for some six hours from the third hour at approximately... So it's 9 a.m. It's 9 in the morning when Jesus is being let out. This trial has gone all night. They have to finish it before the morning temple because they have to work at the temple. They're like, hey, we got to finish this up because we got to be at work in like a half hour. Uh, declare him guilty. Let's go <laughs> kill some lambs. You know, like that's what they're going to do. Um, because we have sacrifices at 9 a.m. Every morning at 9 a.m. they have sacrifices at the temple. And so every morning between 8.30 and 9, all the Jewish people are piling in from all over the place to be at the morning ceremony. Now, um, it is at this point that the followers of Jesus, the ones who were listening to his teachings the day before and a few days before in the temple, this is where they show back up. And they've just begun to learn over, like, what's happened over the, over the evening. They, they know Jesus was arrested, and they come into the morning, and they see him now. There's this guy, this, he's all bloody, his beard's been ripped out, and he's dragging a crossbeam up the hill with soldiers. And they're probably looking at him, trying to recognize him. Who is that? That's Jesus Barabbas, obviously, because Barabbas was supposed to be crucified this morning. But they get closer, and they probably realize this is not him. And, and like this terror falls over them as this rabbi that they've been following and listening to and been inspired by. And they've seen him heal people. Maybe some of them had been healed. And they see him now being dragged out when just the day before they were listening to him teach. Um, and this is where Jesus' followers show back up, and they fall in line behind him. A large number of people followed him, including women uh, who mourned and wailed for him. And they're following him. And while this is happening, everyone is coming in to the temple, to the city of Jerusalem, towards the temple for the morning sacrifices at 9 o'clock. And there's a man named Simon who's coming in, um, previously unknown to us. But he shows up in the story. Um, Luke says something interesting. He says, they seized Simon from Cyrene, 
who was on his way in from the country. Now, when it says the country, it's not saying like he was on his way into Tampa from like Plant City. Um, it's not like the burbs or like the rural outskirts of the city. He's from Cyrene, modern day Libya. That's where he's coming from. It's a very long distance. Um, he lived here. And in traditional sort of Jewish culture, you would save up your money um, because at least one time in your life, you, you want to go to Jerusalem on the Passover to take part in sort of the festivities, the Day of Atonement, um, the, the mourning for the sins of God's people, the crying out for salvation of God's people from their oppressors and their exile, um, and, then, and then declaring the great hope that Yahweh is for the world and all, everything that goes with that, the sacrifices, seeing the temple, it would have been incredible, one of the seven wonders of the world. Beautiful, beautiful place, a dream to do this. And so Simon has probably been saving. He's from not a rich place. Um, he's probably been saving a long time and he's heading in. Maybe he has his family with him. Maybe he's got his wife and kids or whatever. Um, we know who he had kids. We're going to get there in a minute. Um, and he's entering into the city and he's excited about the Passover. He's going to see something he's probably never seen before. And as he's walking in, this terrible thing happens. There's a guy being, he's all bloody and he's being crucified. He's some sort of brigand and he's being carried out. It's Jesus. And he doesn't know him. And he's walking this way. And one of the Romans points a sword at him and says, you, pick up the, pick up the sword, uh, the cross. Pick up the cross and follow, and, and, and follow this man up the hill. And so now, his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity turns into him having to take this bloody crossbeam, which now defiles him and makes him impure, so now he can't enter the temple. It's a tragedy. And he put, puts it on himself. He has to. He has to obey the Roman centurions. And he follows this brigand up the hill who's going to die, and he's, he's bearing the shame, and people are hurling insults, and they probably think he's, he's being crucified as well. Um, and he's dragging this thing up the hill. And it's, this, is, this is not going as he planned at all. Um, worst vacation ever, right? Um, everything is falling apart. Now, um, we learned some interesting things. If you read the, the, the different um, synoptic gospels, uh, Mark says a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So we get a little more from Mark and this is interesting because why is Mark mentioning his kids by name? Well, he's mentioning them by name because the church audience knew who they were. They were apparently well-known in the church, Alexander and Rufus. It's sort of like Mark is telling the story, and as Jesus is being brought out, this man, Siren, from Cyrene, Alexander and Rufus' dad, is there. And this wasn't much longer when all of this is being written and talked about. Maybe he's there with his family. But what this means is Simon became a follower of Jesus and that this is how he met Jesus for the first time. Literally taking up the cross of Christ and getting covered in the blood of Christ. I mean, you're exchanging conversion stories and someone says, how did you become a follower of Jesus? I took up his cross. I'm like, me too, brother. That's it. No, like I literally, I, I'm covered in, I was covered in his blood. Me too, man. 
praise him, praise him. Like, no, like I literally did. Um, this is his story. Like, this is how he met Jesus. And his sons eventually are a part of the church. Um, so these different characters that, that Matthew was laying out side by side, the centurions come to this realization, and you have Simon who comes to this realization. This, he's taking part in this thing. Um, how they're all meeting Jesus and what it means to them. This is all part of the narrative. This is all part of the story. Um, and we, we go a little farther in verse 34. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Uh, there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a, 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 the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So, verse 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. If you, there are several commentaries, biblical scholars have written, that, that mention um, ancient Jewish references to this tradition. Um, there was apparently a group of rich, wealthy women in Jerusalem, and there wasn't a lot of honestly wealthy people in general back then. So there's a, but there's this group of, of very wealthy women in Jerusalem who would make a mixture of wine and frankincense, um, and they would take it to down by the, the exit of the city for these men on particular days who were being crucified, these Jewish men um, who were like failed messiahs or whatever, and they would offer this to them to drink, and it was a painkiller, and it would numb them so that they, because they're about to die, and it's the most intense suffering you can endure is Roman crucifixion. There's nothing more painful than that. Um, and we, I mean, we have these writings. Uh, one of these writings literally says this. When a man is going out to be killed, they allow him to drink a grain of frankincense in a cup of wine to deaden the senses. Wealthy women of Jerusalem used to contribute these things and bring them. And, and apparently, um, we know, we know from, from Luke that Jesus has several wealthy women funding his ministry as well. Um, we have Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's business manager. Herod worked in spices and stuff. I, I've talked about this. Um, Susanna um, was a follower of his as well. Uh, and many others, who, many other women who were contributing their own resources to, to support Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus' ministry is funded by wealthy women. And I imagine it is entirely rational to think that there is a connection between the two groups. Um, and that maybe even these are the same women. But whatever it is, they are there offering Jesus one last sort of mercy as he's about to die. And the text says that Jesus refused to drink it. And the question is, why? Why would he refuse to drink this? He apparently wanted and was determined to accept death at its worst, at its most painful, at its grimmest, uh, to avoid no particle of pain. Um, and he apparently wanted humanity to unleash their worst on him. What is the worst thing you have? What is the worst brutality, the worst insults, the, the, all of it, your angst, your bitterness, your fears, your rage, your racism, all of it, and Jesus is pulling it out of everyone around him. 
and he's receiving it, and he's not. He give, he's given the opportunity to have it deadened, and he, and he doesn't, and he receives it. It says he tasted it, and then he spit it out and refused it because he realized what it is. And he is, is bringing out of these people for everyone to see the worst. Now, scholars tell us that this, is, this particular year was quite possibly the, the most, the busiest um, Passover in, that Jerusalem had in its history there. Um, a, couple de- a few decades later, the whole place would be destroyed and it never happened again. This was likely because of uh, several different festivals all happening at the same exact time. This was, there was likely more Jews in Jerusalem at this particular time than at any other time in their history. And Jesus is allowing himself to be the display of, of the absolute depravity of human beings, of the worst that they have, pulling it out of them and putting it upon himself so that all can see, walking straight down the main street up towards the hill where everyone will be able to see. He wanted to remove it. He wanted to absorb it. He wouldn't soften it. He wouldn't minimize it. He wouldn't try to make it look less than it is. He wouldn't sort of smooth it over and be like, it's okay, it's okay. It doesn't hurt that bad. None of it. It would be the worst. He would make sure that everyone saw what evil looks like. Now, this is an important thing, that we expose evil to the world. It has to be seen. It cannot be minimized. Um, In the last week, um, the infamous story of Emmett Till is back in the the news again. Um, and if you're familiar with his mother, um, uh, Mamie Till, what was her last name? Mamie, Mamie Till Mobley was her last name. Um, when she found out about the news of her son who had been um, kidnapped by white supremacists and beaten beyond recognition um, and tortured and killed and left for three days, for apparently flirting with a white girl. Um, And his mother receives his body and she makes a, a single decision that is very much like what Christ is doing here. It's very, it's a very Christ-like decision. Um, She says, we're going to have an open casket. I want the world to see. I want the world to see what they did to my boy, to my beautiful son. And she invites the newspapers. She puts a picture of what he was like and what he is like now. This is what Matthew was doing. And this is what she was doing. Because injustice in the ugliness of humanity must be exposed if anything can be done about it. If we're actually going to deal with it, we have to face it and admit, here it is. And Jesus pulls it out of all of them and bears it upon himself. Um, It is estimated that because of this move by her, that 50,000 people over the next few days viewed his body. And it reignited the civil rights movement that is still happening to this day. This this is what it means for Jesus to continue walking through this publicly on on this incredible day. What she is doing 
is an embodiment of what Jesus was doing. Look at my pain. Look at my suffering. Look at what you are doing to me. Look at what we are doing to each other. Things are not as they should be, and you ought not to turn away. You ought to look directly at it. And when you look at it, I want you to see the face of God. I want you to see the face of humanity together here. Look at your evil and your sin and repent. And that's what Jesus is doing. And Jesus would publicly take their evil upon himself. He would publicly display it. Um, And through it all, as people gaze at the horror of all of this, he would prove that even in the worst thing anyone could throw at him, he would hang there and he would say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That at the worst moment of human depravity, Jesus would declare, but they can still be forgiven. This is the face of God. Even at your absolute worst, God looks at you and says, but I, there is forgiveness for you. There is community for you. There is a new, fresh start for you. Tomorrow doesn't have to be like it is today. This stuff can be put to death. It can be put behind us. Matthew has, in this passage, um, and I, this is one of the things I want you to see. In this passage, in the crucifixion, Matthew has gone to really great lengths to include and point out that at the crucifixion of Christ, he has placed on display the entirety of Jesus' teaching and ministry. The things that Jesus taught about how we should be, he displays them here. He's embodying his teachings. The word becomes flesh here um, for all of them to see. Um, Jesus is not just, he didn't just preach and say, here's how the thing should be. You need to change. Here's how it should be. But instead, if you actually open up, you get two Bibles and you open up Matthew to, uh, to, to chapter five through seven and you read the Sermon on the Mount and then side by side, you read the crucifixion of Jesus. You will be able to point out, I think, every single instruction of the Sermon on the Mount in the last couple days of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. You can see it all. I want to I show you just a few of them here. Um, Matthew five thirty nine. I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. This was when Jesus was instructing his lowly people. Like if someone is looking down upon you and, and they slap you on the right cheek, which is a backhanded hit. People or soldiers were right-handed. This is a backhanded hit. Uh, stand up, look at them eye level, and turn the other cheek. So now you're being hit as an equal. Demand that you're an equal. Look at them in the eye as your brother. And when you get hit, it will expose everything people need to see. Um, And so Jesus, in this moment, he says, I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them to the other cheek also. Jesus is struck in the face by the soldiers over and over and over again, and he doesn't retaliate. He says nothing. And he receives it and takes it upon himself. Um, and then you go a little farther, and it says, if anyone wants to sue you, uh, if anyone takes your, uh, takes your shirt, give them your coat as well. This is another system of, of uh, another method of Jesus sort of exposing the sin of the people. It was unjust. You had two, pair, two articles of clothing. It was unjust for somebody to take both and to leave you naked. It was a shameful thing to do because anything that takes from people the last bit of what they have is unjust, and everyone knew this. People used to know this. Um, and so someone takes from you your coat. Jesus says, give him your shirt too. Take, give him, 
Stand there naked with your last article and say, this is what you have done to me. And as Jesus is arrested and beaten, he's stripped naked. And according to verse 36 of chapter 27, they divide up his clothes and they gamble over them while he is left exposed, bearing his shame, which in reality is their shame, not his. And he's looking at them as they're doing this. Um, And then you go a little farther, Matthew 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. I always thought this was brilliant. Um, There was the Roman law that they can demand you carry the cross of Christ or carry my pack, uh, take, take my soldier pack, and they can pick anyone out of a crowd. You have to carry it, but they can only carry it one mile. And Jesus says, well, if they make you carry it one mile, you know what you do? You get to the one mile mark, take off running. (laughs) Like, keep keep moving. And so now you have, like, you're breaking, they're, like, suddenly breaking the law. They're like, stop, stop. And now they have to come take the pack from you, and they're chasing you down the road, right? Like, all of it, it's, it's, it's like the scene that exposes, all of it exposes, like, this is the world. This is what's wrong with human rule. This is what's wrong with the kingdoms of the world in, in juxtaposition with the kingdom of God, in di- full dichotomy with the whole thing. Um. And this was displayed when they took Simon out of the crowd and forced him to carry it. Everything in in the Sermon on the Mount shows up here. Um, You go a little farther. It says, you have heard that it was said, love your enemies, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he calls out to the Father and says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even at the moment where he is bearing the full brunt of their evil, he's, he's forgiving them and loving them. Everything that Jesus taught, he displayed. This is the, this is the center of Christianity. Um, there's a lot of ways that I hear people talk about Christianity. Um, people talk about it as this, like, it's this super happy-go-lucky, feel-good religion. It just makes me happy. And it's like this la dog kind of thing. Um, I have a hard time with it um, because the message of God's people is, was never intended to be like this motivational speech kind of thing. It was never intended to be like this. It's just really inspiring. It inspires me to be a better person. It was never supposed to be that. Um, it was never supposed to be like this wonderful inner, inner peace. It's literally about outer peace. Like literally which also gives you inner peace. The Spirit of God is with you. Um, it's, it's not about a spiritual existence. Um, this was never about having your dreams accomplished. What's your biggest dream? Let's accomplish that together. Um, it's, it was never about great things for yourself. Christianity, actual Christianity, is the embodiment of the cross. It has nothing to do with escaping from the pains of the world and flying away while the world burns behind you. A disembodied soul. Like, that is not Christianity. That is Gnosticism. That's a medieval invention that was added to Christianity. Christianity, as understood by the first century Jewish Christians, was about the restoration of all things and the regathering of all people into Israel as God's people under one king, which is Jesus, and the world being made whole and right again, repenting of our earthly kings and our earthly ways and our, the people that we follow, the ways that we try to solve these things, and finally awakening that like none of this has worked 
have we tried Jesus? Christianity is the great hope of the world, that things can be made right. It is not your Sunday morning, like, happy club sing-along. Like, it, it is literally about a man who taught about exposing the ugliness of the world and then says, and, and here's how you do it. And he exercises it. And then he says, um, now I'm gonna form a people in my image who are going to carry this cross and you are gonna live this way. And then you read church history and you see every one of the apostles experiencing the exact same thing. And eventually, Rome fell. It did it. Literally took down the greatest empire in the world. Until we got lazy and decided that we were going to meld it with earthly empires under Constantine. And took up the sword. And it was all downhill from here. Um, we got off the rails real quick. Like real early. Um, Christianity is about the embodiment of the cross. Jesus is not downplaying the evil present in the world. He's not brushing it aside. He's not forgetting about it. He's standing in it. He's exposing it. He's bearing the weight of it publicly. Christianity is not a message at all. It is not a commitment to study the Bible and singing worship songs. It is Christ, the word made flesh, and us following Jesus, and us taking that message and putting flesh on it again. That is what Christianity is. The Sermon on the Mount, the racial reconciliation between the Jews and the, and the Gentiles, the healing of the sick, the exposing of the systemic injustice in the temple, the exposing of the systemic injustice in the palace, um, the spending of your dying moments with the most hated people on your right and on your left. Remember that argument about, about hey, when you come into your kingdom and sit on your throne, which one of us is going to sit at your right hand and your left? And he goes, first off, you don't understand what you're asking. You don't know what my throne's going to look like. It looks like a cross. Um, you will eventually follow me in that way. He's sort of telling them you're going to eventually bear your cross yourself. But then he tells them, God has already sort of chosen the people who are going to be on my right and on my left. And they were criminals. This is, this is the life of Christ. This is the life that we are called to to be present with those who are suffering and oftentimes to endure it sacrificially as a sight to the world to say, do you see it? And in all of this, bringing forgiveness and salvation and saying, I receive what you did to me and I'm gonna respond, not by retaliation, but I'm gonna invite you to have a seat at the table with me. And I want you to meet somebody who is a far greater king than whoever taught you to live this way. And you live this way together. Christianity is a revolution. It's a resistance. It is a declaration of a new way forward. Christians are people from the future whom the world is not ready for. They are not ready for our way of life that we have been called to. And many of us aren't ready for it either. But it is all we are offered. This is what the church is called to be. To reveal the sins of the world and call them to repent and align themselves with a new king in a new way. Christians, I mean, John puts it, the word became flesh and walked among us. That is how we learned about the salvation that God is bringing and about who we are supposed to be. And the word, once again, is supposed to become flesh and walk along everyone who is not gathered here this morning.
us to put the message of God on for it to become flesh and live incarnationally in their presence. It is not enough to simply know some doctrine, to hear some doctrine and say, I agree with that. I believe that. That is, that is not enough. Participation with Christ is what makes you a follower of his. The word faith is the Greek word pistis, which means allegiance to a king. Allegiance to a king is not, well, I know the history of the king. So? So, literally the scriptures say, like, so do the demons, and they shudder. Participation with Christ is what the church is called to be. And the church, you guys, the church, if you're wondering what God's big plan is to make everything right, we're it. He has given the world, the church, his body to bring salvation, to bring the salvation of Jesus, the forgiveness and the mercy of Christ. We are the, the initial like planting of the kingdom of God. It's not somewhere else. There's not some other group of people that God is going to call to rise up to, to take part in what God is doing and fix it. Like, we are the plan. And if all we're doing is preserving the message of Christ for one more generation, like, I believe one, one generation is finally going to awaken and say, we are going to live in the path of Christ and the world is going to see it and awaken to it. We are obviously not that generation, And so let's do everything we can to raise that generation, to instill in them an understanding of who Jesus actually is and who the church actually is. It it must keep surviving and being taught. We must keep gathering and wrestling and repenting and taking communion, always. We must keep going. It is participation with Christ that makes us a follower of his. We don't just teach about the cross of Christ. We become it. The word, the message must become flesh. We're going to take communion, as we always do. Um, communion service, you guys can go ahead and gather the elements and spread out. I, I want to, like, paint a picture for you. Um, so there's all kinds of ways that we want to make our lives better. And we always look at these things and we're like, okay, so I want to eat less or I want to exercise or I want to, I want to think differently. And we, we, we know these facts, like it takes 21 days of doing something to make it a habit. And so, um, you know what that, you know what that phrase is? That's like dwelling on something like the message, dwelling on that message, the whole goal of dwelling on that message of like, I'm going to eat less or I'm going to exercise or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. I'm going to read more. The whole point of the 21 days of dwelling on that message is so that it will eventually like, so that it'll just become a part of who you are so that you'll just do it. And I used to really struggle to eat right, but now I don't even think about it. I just eat right. You know what that is? The word became flesh. That's what that is. The message, the thing that you wanted, the law became natural. It became flesh. That's what we're doing with communion. We are exercising, taking part in the table of Christ and taking it upon ourselves. You take the body of Christ, you break it. It's the body of Christ broken for you and you're reminding yourself and you dip it in the wine. It's the body and blood of Christ poured out and broken for you for your salvation, for your wholeness. And there's the invitation to take part in it and you eat it and you ask God to take, take it and touch the parts of your life that have not been touched. And this is one way, a simple transition, like a bridge from like the, the mental to the physical, like from heart to like hands. This thing that you believe, this is step one, and, and we practice this, and eventually 
the goal is that you will eventually, outside these walls, begin to see Christ in the common, in everything. That in everything you do, you will look at what you have and what others don't have, and you will allow it to be broken and poured out for them so they can be healed and be filled in every part of your life. Why? Because this is what Jesus did. We are the embodiment of the cross. And so let's pray and let's take communion, shall we? I want all of you, I invite you to take communion. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Change us, make us whole. As we uh, finish studying the, uh, the letters of Pastor Matthew to his congregation, I pray that we would become that congregation. And again, whatever it was that stirred them on, let us catch that and let your spirit fall upon us. And lead us in that way. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.